Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at Netflix's new rom-com film, The Lovebirds. We're also going to look at 2019's Elton John music biopic, uh, Rocket Man, because there's just nothing coming out in theaters, so we kind of just got to, you know, dig deep. This is what the summer blockbuster season looks like. Yeah, man. Uh, it's the best we can do. And we didn't watch Rocket Man uh, last year. We, we opted to watch Bohemian Rhapsody instead. Everybody told us we should watch Rocket Man. We didn't. But we watched it this week and we got hot takes on it. We're also going to talk We're going to talk about some new trailers that have come out. Uh, one of them in particular, I think Andy and I are really excited to see. And we'll get to what that is. But before we get to all of that, the news, and before we get to all of that, a brief announcement. We're streaming the show. We haven't talked about that's this. That's right. That's right. We haven't talked about this on the show, but we're streaming the show to our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash offscript film review, I think is the URL. So if you want to get involved in watching us do this podcast live, as clumsy as it is, without the editing, uh, you can watch it there every Tuesday, except for today, because we're doing it on Wednesday. <laughs> So anyway, we should get into the news. Our first story, Zack Snyder will release the Snyder Cut of Justice League on HBO Max. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, what is the Snyder Cut, Andy, and why is this kind of a big big deal? Okay, so back when uh, Justice League was supposed to come out in 2017, Zack Snyder had to step away from the project due to a family tragedy, and Joss Whedon ended up uh, taking over, who of course did the Marvel Uh, several of the big Marvel Avengers films. And you ended up getting a film that was really kind of a little bit of both worlds. You had some of the darkness of Zack Snyder, and then you had some of the lightness and more funny, kind of quippy version of Joss Whedon. So anyways, after that, uh, fans kind of assumed that there was some cut of Justice League out there, which eventually became called the Snyder Cut, and fans, and even some other celebrities like, um, I know Gal Gadot and Jason Momoa have also gotten behind this hashtag of release the Snyder Cut. And so HBO Max is finally going to do it on uh, HBO Max on um, 2021. There's there's a couple reasons this is amazing news. Um, One, because this is a director's cut from a director who did not finish the film this is like a director who made half of it it's like if we got brian singer's bohemian rhapsody before dexter fletcher took over and finished the film like it's it's weird and and you don't get cuts like that additionally it's weird because there's a whole lot of post-production that has to go into a cgi heavy film like justice league and when a director is about I don't know, three-fourths of the way through finishing their film, and then another director is brought in, and they step outside of it. Um, of his own volition, by the way, Zack Snyder was not fired from the film. He, he left uh, due to family circumstances. Uh, the movie's not done. It's not like those multi-million dollar CGI budget-heavy shots are like completed and just are sitting on a shelf now. Somebody has to go back and fix all those effects and green screen effects. So when people said release the Zack Snyder cut, the Zack Snyder cut was never like finished it was never like sitting on a shelf ready to go out it would take millions of dollars to probably finish what that film is and and put it into a presentable format to make it something worth showing to the public that's respective of the brand that warner brothers and dc would feel like is okay to foot put in front of people it seemed like something that would never happen and and here we are now it's being done yes we're talking about a 20 to 30 million dollar investment additional um, to release this version of the film. And, you know, it didn't really do that great at the box office. You know, it was a $300 million movie. It made about $650 million. So it, it it wasn't the huge Avengers-level hit that they wanted. So it, it's surprising that they are spending this on. I think there is interest, and I'm interested to see what kind of this version. But it was still kind of like not a great movie to begin with. Yeah, like, we, we, we didn't think a whole lot of it. It's got a 40 on Rotten. Uh, after this movie came out, Ben Affleck stepped away from the cowl. He's not doing Batman anymore. Like, this this movie was not good for a lot of reasons. And it's weird that, like, in the light of of Joker, right, of, of like, a small-budget picture making so much more money and having such a bigger splash... Rather than invest that money into, like, another project, Warner Brothers is doubling down on an already failed picture to produce a director's cut from a director who didn't finish the movie. 
It is the it is the damnedest thing. It's so weird. But but there's weird demand for it, and so they're gonna go through with it. It is. Yeah, you're you're right. There are a lot of people that are passionate about it. You, you said it earlier. There are celebrities who have already posted videos and tweeted about it. Released the Snyder Cut. It's mainly a lot of the Justice League cast. Uh what do you expect from this thing before we go to our next story? Because there's no way it's good, right? There's no way it's good. No, I, like, I mean you have a, a pretty mediocre film like uh, some new additions or making some new scenes or new cuts or even a whole new version you're not going to make a mediocre film into a great film you're just going to have a slightly different mediocre film yeah it's exactly what i what i think this is but uh you can bet we're i mean we, we got to watch it for the show right we got to watch the snyder cut yeah i mean yeah Sh- you got we have to you yes. got it any movie podcast with their salt is going to watch this movie, including us. So keep it here on Offscript for more, and we'll let you know what's next. Our next story, the Tenet trailer debuts a time-bending uh, showcase on Fortnite. I, I kind of botched that headline a little bit, but a- Andy, what what is this about? Uh, so last week, was uh, the second trailer for Tenet was released, which is Christopher Nolan's new new film that which hopefully will kind of reinvigorate uh theaters and we're going to be talking about that trailer a little bit more later um but the strange thing is that it debuted on Fortnite, um which seems really kind of weird but actually because of things like because of the pandemic uh, marketing has actually become very difficult you can't market in a lot of traditional ways um even on things like online um just because of the economy and the kind of entertainment people are and aren't producing so it's actually been difficult to market this thing uh but fortnite is it has a huge following huge fan base and there have been other kind of advertising things that have happened uh, on F- Fortnite, uh, musical artists have debuted things on there. J.J. Abrams uh, debuted uh, a scene from s- the most recent Star Wars film. So it, it's this weird thing where these huge games that have a huge fa- uh, following are kind of the perfect place to release a big, th- a big thing because that's where you have a crowd. Yeah, th- this was a weird one. Um, the trailer was announced to be coming out after TV spot, and they said it's going to be on Fortnite, and everybody got on Twitter, and they said, man, Christopher Nolan must be so pissed. What what executive said this was okay? And according to people who were involved with it in, in the marketing, they said it might have kind of been Christopher Nolan's idea. Uh, according to them, they were on a call, right? A bunch of executives with, with Chris Nolan, and they were like, what do we want to do here? Because what, what what's the plan, Chris? How, how are we going to dump a trailer so a lot of people are going to see it other than just putting it on YouTube? Nobody's going to movies, so you can't hide the trailer in front of Hobbs and Shaw like you did with the original teaser or some other big blockbuster. Nobody's going to sporting events. There's no large gatherings of people. So how are you going to present a trailer in front of a large crowd? And apparently he was like, uh, what about like, I don't know, other forms of media? What do we got? Any answers? And somebody said, well, there's like Fortnite. And he was like, yeah, okay. A lot of people play that. Maybe that'll work. And he rolled with it. And it kind of worked. Uh, as somebody who doesn't play Fortnite, I'm, 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 a, I'm a little, I'm a little irked that I couldn't get it <laughs> on my platform of choice, but it's definitely bombastic. It's it's a cheap way to make headlines, right? Like new trailer coming out on Fortnite of all things. It's good for it's good for both sides of the marketing, both for Fortnite and for Tenet. It seems like a marketing win-win as much as I disagree with the ideology of it. Yeah, it 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 totally worked and the trailer was available on YouTube not long after. Yeah, which is good for the rest of, for the rest of us who don't play Fortnite. Um Honestly, I, I can't imagine the Fortnite crowd is particularly interested in this, right? Because like the, the the audience that actually plays that game is is pretty young. It skews pretty young. A whole lot of Gen Zers over there, and and they don't care about Tenet. I don't think. Like I can't imagine they're particularly interested in an R well, R rated thriller. Maybe they are, but um, ideally, his target audience isn't on Fortnite, and that's not really who they were aiming for. They were aiming for people who are going to be tracking stories like this, right? Those are the people that are really going to be interested. Um, it's indirect and and smart, and I hate to say that because I don't like Fortnite, but <laughs> I guess I respect this move. What do you think? I think it's smart. Like you said, people have had to get really creative with a whole lot of things and a whole lot of businesses, and this is just kind of another example of that. Yeah, it is just another example of that. So we are going to talk about the trailer more directly in between our reviews of the Lovebirds and Rocket Man. So 
just stick around. We'll get to it. We got hot takes, I promise. Um, before we get to those, though, one more story. The Safdie brothers set first look deal with HBO. The Safdie brothers are, of course, the directors of Uncut Gems and our review last week's Good Time. Uh, they are some pretty hot up-and-coming directors, right? I-, I think, at least. And this was a bit of a surprise to find out they're signing a deal for exclusivity with HBO. Or is it? What, what do you think, Andy? Um, I mean, I think it's a smart move. They've shown to be really good and unique filmmakers, uh, and, and they're going to be working with A24. A24 is going to produce for HBO, um, which they, they also produced for for the other two films they did. I, I think it's it makes a lot of sense, and you know, the the line between TV and and film is is ever blurring. Yes, uh, I, I would agree. Sorry, I was stunned for a second because i was like wait how do i respond to that hosting a movie podcast but you're correct (laughs) the line between film and tv is ever blurring content is content now right and you can see incredibly high quality stuff on netflix on hbo certainly um whether it be television or documentaries or tv or or film quibi has high quality stuff at this point right (laughs) so like it's it's not that much of a surprise to see, hey, they kind of want to dabble in TV a little bit in limited series. Even directors like Quentin Tarantino have said they wanted to do that. I guess it's also not a surprise they're staying with A24. I think that's a smart move. A24 seemed to, seems to respect its creators. And going with HBO means they're probably going to have the budget and the elbow grease to get done what they want to get done. So not that bad of a move. But it's only for two years, right? Did I read that correct? Yeah, it's a first look deal, two years. So we'll see what they, what they churn out with... Um, with HBO and see if that gets extended or if they end up doing more TV. Yeah. Well, I'll keep it here for more, I guess. I, I hope, I hope, I hope history looks back kindly on these guys. If they can keep their streak going here. Cause so far they put it, put together two really, really solid films. Uh, I can't wait to see what they do next. Um, they're, 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 they're real good. They're real sharp, Andy. That's right. <laughs> they are. And with that, we should move on to our first review of the episode. Andy has graciously agreed to take the summary on this one. Andy, please take it away. The Lovebirds. Oh, shit! <laughs> Police officer! He's a criminal! Move, move, move! Oh, no, Justice! So this is the new comedy from Netflix uh, starring Issa Rae and Camille Nanjiani. Uh, they star as Leilani and Gibran, a couple that we see them get together very early in the film. It's all, you know, rainbows and butterflies. And then we cut to three years later and they're, they live together and they're fighting, constantly bickering. Uh, it seems like the re- relationship is on the outs. Um, and as they're driving, they kind of break up, but then they also end up hitting a guy on a bicycle. And this ends up leading to a, a very, uh, like a chase, like, leads into this whole like crime story that that's the backing of the film and so it's kind of like a reverse uh, rom-com um they get themselves involved in this crime syndicate they have to they're suspects they have to clear their names they have to solve the mystery and in the meanwhile they're they work through their own issues and kind of repair their relationship uh that's the the gist of the story um the plot is not super relevant, but uh, our two leads, I think, are are really good and really make this uh, a lot better <laughs> than it would have been. So, Zach, what do you think? Uh, I think you're exactly right. I think the leads and the lovebirds elevate it like above what is just normally seemingly another generic Netflix film. The plot is goofy and loose, and there's really not a whole lot to it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. There are leaps in logic. But the moment-to-moment dialogue between these two characters who've been in a relationship and then just recently cut it off and are now forced to work together uh, is fantastic. And the way they <laughs> bounce off each other is so good. Like, the moment-to-moment quips and, and, and the insults and the digs at each other are so funny. And, like, even though the plot is not fantastic and a lot of it's pretty cheap and just kind of thrown together... Um, it seems like they were having a lot of fun making it, and I think that shows in the performances, even though typically that means it's not actually going to be a good movie. This one's all right, though. That's what I think. A- Andy, what'd you think? Yeah, similar. It reminded me a lot of Coffee and Kareem, which was also a Netflix uh, film, although that was supposed to get a, a release, which actually this may have also maybe supposed to have gotten a theatrical release. Um, it's hard to tell these days. But, you know, Coffee and Kareem was another one where with a nonsensical plot just for the sake of co- comedy bits. And that's yeah. what we get here 
hear a lot. And like you said, we have great performances from uh, both comedians. I, I laughed a lot. There's some really good jokes and good gags. And, you know, there's some jokes that, that don't land. But overall, really funny. Yeah, very funny. So let's kind of get into it, I guess. Uh, first place to start... Well, what do you think? Hold on, this is your review. Where do you think we should get going? Uh, why don't we? Well, why don't we start with our our stars, um, Camille Nanjiani, who's uh, we've seen in uh, lots of comedies, and he's going to be coming up in Marvel's Eternals as well, which he got super ripped for. Yeah, um, he he's always a, a delight. He's always funny. You know, I've watched him in Silicon Valley. We watched him in The Big Sick. Then um, he's Stuber. He was in. Yeah, you know, so yeah. he just has really great delivery. Good kind of physical. Uh, comedy he freaks he has a good freak out uh that kind of thing um what do you think of Issa Rae? uh she was fantastic so i haven't watched insecure on hbo but i've always heard i should and i knew she was in that and that's won some awards and had some acclaim and i think that's going into its third season right now uh she's in this i was like well i, was, I, I know kamala jenna let's see what she's about she's fantastic she might be better than him in this movie because she's got this subtlety to her performance that makes it feel so much more genuine. Things don't feel so canned. They feel very honest and real when she's saying them, which is perfect because her character in this movie is somebody who's supposed to be over this relationship, who's who's, who's kind of putting it behind her and is not into the situation she's in now and is scared, obviously, but, but is just not just not here for it right and it fits kind of perfect for an actress who's normally on hbo and is in this kind of goofy rom-com movie like she's having fun but in a way it feels like she knows the plot is a little hokey and she knows what she's getting into and she brings that into the performance in the best way and like it's so refreshing because she 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 it feels like she can read exactly what kind of film she's in and she just totally fits right into it it's it's really well done and and it outshines the rest of the film, the plot and kind of the general filmmaking, certainly many of the other characters, but Kamal Nanjani, I think is just as fun. Right. And, and that, that leads into a good kind of maybe the next area we should go to, which is the plot. Yes. Um, which is probably the weakest part of, of this film. It, like I said, it starts with them. They hit a guy on a bicycle. He's actually running from someone else, but he gets killed. And then, so they have to, people think they're suspects and they have to clear their name, but they have to solve this mystery. And so like, it's really all over the place. And it's just an excuse for them to go from like location to location, to situation, to situation. Um, it really doesn't work too well. And there's a really weird s- sequence that I think a reference to eyes wide Sh- Shut. Yeah, uh, that's definitely not a reference side. Eyes wide shut, and it's just it's bizarre that it would be in here. But that's the plot's probably the weakest part of, of this movie. Yeah, it's it starts so good. Like we we get this clever framing device at the open where the two of them just meet each other. And it's the morning after this great date they had and they go out for breakfast and they're, they just bounce off each other so good. And then we jump to three years later and they're having this like incredibly passive aggressive fight that is not like angry, but you can feel like the emotion under what they're saying. But they're still trying to be kind of laughy and funny with each other, which feels super real. And I was I was I was totally there for that. Then we get this clever kind of device for how they get into this caper because they accidentally hit a guy on a bike, but then somebody jacks their car and says he's a cop and goes and finds the guy on the bike. And then he runs him over and then that guy takes off. And now they're left in the street with a busted up car and a body. And then they get found by a couple of hipsters and, and then they run because they don't want to deal with the cops because they're, they're (laughs) citizens citizens of color. Yeah. And it looks like we just killed a guy and ran and, and that stuff is all great. Like, that plays so good. The whole first act, the setup, it feels real and genuine. And then you get into, like, this caper in, like, a farmhouse with, like, a local congressman. And, and then there's some frat boy. And, like, then it really devolves. But, like, the first chunk of it really holds up good. Like, it really does. And it sets up for, like, a good script and good acting that carries through the rest of the film, even though the plot isn't quite as serviceable and it holds up it it you could certainly do worse for netflix originals but like you know not too shabby man it's it's really not that bad <laughs> yeah it made me think of of book smart and just how that film has ha, does have a much better central plot you know it's about gra- graduation and let's party before we graduate kind of live out our lives to the fullest and and it's a real solid plot and it's instrumental to the comedy and a lot of things that happen and that's what this this film's really kind of missing that aspect to it um 
Uh, let's talk about the humor that's in here. This is a comedy, in fact. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah, so we need to talk about the comedy. Uh, if I haven't praised the, the moment-to-moment dialogue enough, it's fantastic. Uh, the two of them are, are biting and witty, but not, like, hurtful in ways that feels really emotional and positive, but also, like, able to jab at each other because they've been in a relationship a long time. Like, that's how people in relationships are. That makes sense. They know each other. They know how far they can push each other. That's great. There's also some physical comedy. Uh, some of yeah. it's harsh. <laughs> some of it's very dark comedy, like our biker getting hit and then run over a number of times, uh, which is, you know, good and funny. Cause like you said earlier, Kumal and Johnny plays a great straight man. He's good at like just seeing funny things happening and reacting in a very serious way as Ray does a great job in the same way. We also get some good physical humor in a bit involving a horse, which I had probably the biggest laugh at in the whole <laughs> film. Um, mostly cause of Kumal and Johnny, uh, you definitely get some eyes wide shut stuff later. Uh, definitely some, culty stuff that I don't really want to get into and definitely some some commentary on like modern society wrapped up in there a little bit the two of them run from the crime scene because they know they look guilty and also they're people of color which means to them they're pretty much guaranteed to get busted and when they get seen at the crime scene it's by these two hipsters who are wearing goofy clothes and and don't really listen to them and it's this commentary on on hipsters so it's got a little bit to say about the world it's got a little bit to say about relationships it doesn't have much to say about like getting into goofy capers, but ultimately <laughs> I think it still holds up pretty good. I-, I laughed a handful of times in this film. I'd say. Yeah. Out yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like you said, there's some f- physical comedy. There's, there's, you know, people getting hit, hit by stuff like the kind of three stooges things, but it's, it's, it works. It's really uh, pretty funny. And then I think the highlight is just uh, our comedians who just have really good kind of comebacks or quips or the way they, they react. And I, I think what I really appreciated about Issa Rae is that she's a very full fledged character. She's not a lot of times in these kinds of comedies, you might, they get, uh, like someone like her would get stereotyped into just like loud, angry black woman. And, and she's yeah. not, she's not that like there are parts when she goes into that, but she's well-rounded, you know, she's quiet. Sometimes she's reserved. Some she's biting. Like she's just a very well-rounded character. And like I said, the, the lines are, are really good there. I was definitely laughing out loud at a lot of the writing. Yeah. Uh, I do want to talk about kind of this, the state of the filmmaking, because I don't think the music is particularly outstanding. I don't recall anything from it. I think the plot we've talked about enough, but just kind of the general cinematography. This movie does feel a little cheap. Like, it does feel a lot like they're just on sets in a studio somewhere, you know, on a soundstage. Like, it doesn't feel like they're actually out in New York. There's a few scenes on location, but, like, I, 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 would, I would compare it to something like Kumal Nanjani's previous film, Stuber, with Dave Batista, where like it felt like they were in LA in every scene. Like it felt like they were out in public doing things all the time. And a lot of it's because they were, but like even the stuff at night, even the stuff where they're in a warehouse, like it still feels like you're on location. Here, I don't know if it's the lighting or the angles or just the general direction, but it just didn't quite get over the line for me. It just, it always felt like this like subpar film and i think this was supposed to be in theaters this trailer uh we're running right now is, is has an april 3rd date on it i think that's when it was supposed to come out yeah yeah exactly and i wonder how it would have done there uh, what do you think i i think this is one of those things that it, it would have done poorly in theaters it did great it's probably great for netflix yeah i, I agree i i think um of the netflix films we've watched you could certainly do worse um any other thoughts for recommendations i think i'm ready Andy, would you recommend The Lovebirds? Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. It's on Netflix if you're already subscribed to that. It's elevated by our two leads. It's not too long. It's, uh, I think, under 90 minutes. Um, it's a good time. It's good humor. It, it, it is, you know, I think it's an R rating, so some of it is crude. Uh, so just be aware of that uh, for the family. But it's a good time. Yeah, I, I think I'd recommend it as well. It's goofy, like the pl- the plot's a little loose, but there's some pretty solid physical comedy. There's definitely good writing in there. And the two leads, Kumal Nanjani and Issa Rae, are like so much fun. And you can tell they were bouncing off each other when they make it. They've got this like on-screen chemistry together that really works. Not necessarily romantically, but as like comedy actors and an actress. Like they're, they're, they're really solid and they elevate this movie above what it could be. If you're going to watch a movie on Netflix, you could do... Oh, if you're going to watch a Netflix original on Netflix, I should clarify, you could do so much worse than The Lovebirds. This movie's... A lot of fun. I, I think I'd recommend it. Yeah. A, a, a thumb up. One thumb up. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'd say. 
And with that, we should move on to our next bit. Uh, Andy, while I'm making transitions here, do you want to introduce this for me? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's time for the trailer park. And our first film is Christopher Nolan's Tenet. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War Three. I'm not saying I'm again here. No. Something worse. Last week, they debuted the trailer for Tenet, which we hadn't seen anything of uh, for quite some time. We got to see a lot more of this film. Still don't really know what it's about, which is a hallmark of Chris Nolan filmmaking. If you, It would be like trying to explain Inception uh, when that trailer came out. It was like, I don't, no matter how many times I watched it, I could not explain it. And this seems to be a little bit of that. All, all we know is that our main character, played by John David Washington, is part of uh, what seems to be some sort of like government agency um, that has stumbled on some sort of technology uh, involving time manipulation. Not time travel, but some uh they they describe it as uh running time backwards or in inversion is right. the word they use yeah running time through things and so we see these these scenes where things kind of appear to run backwards whilst other things are running forward it's a really neat uh effect and uh Kenneth Branagh seems to be the big bad guy who at one point it's mentioned he can communicate with people in in the future so it's it's similar to Chris Nolan's other films in that he has has this obsession with with time and how it means and what how it relates to us and uh, these kinds of things. Uh, I'm really excited for it. I, I think it looks great. We we have an incredible cast. You know, Chris Nolan sci-fi. I'm really stoked for it. Uh, Zach, what do you think about this? Man, I'm really excited about this movie. Uh, Christopher Nolan has this level of. He's reached this level of like filmmaking status that is that is seemingly unreachable by everybody else in Hollywood. You know when you're going to go watch a Christopher Nolan film, you're going to have a great time. You know, it's going to be like three hours. You know, it's going to be mind bending <laughs> and you're going to see some crazy good visuals and some crazy effects. And you know, you're going to want to watch it again. Like the guy just seems to deliver hit after hit. And he does it by introducing this kind of magical realism, right? That like we take the world we know and we twist it a little and we play with it. And and he did that going all the way back to Memento. He certainly did that in films like Conception. He even did that in things like The Dark Knight where you have a man running around in a cape and a suit and somehow people believe it. Like it, it's this element of adding layers onto what we know to be reality to create a captivating story. And and the story within, I'm a little more worried about because when you get into international hijinks, man, it may not be all that interesting. But if you do it on a level like Inception, which is also a Christopher Nolan film where it's hyper-focused and we're not dealing with big, angry corporations or something. We're just dealing with some people doing a job, which what appears to be John David Washington and Robert Pattinson doing. I think you're going to have a lot of fun. I think the inversion thing is super cool and interesting. There's obviously some visual effects we haven't really talked about, naming, namely with blowing up a 747, <laughs> yeah. which according, according to Twitter... Christopher Nolan actually went and bought a 747 because it was cheaper than doing it CGI-wise, which I don't understand how that adds up, but whatever. Um, you know it's going to be a good time, and and I'm, I'm unrealistically excited about this movie. I, I watched the trailer once and have not watched it again other than this live stream because I don't <laughs> want to spoil it for myself. I'm already frame way too frame. hyped. Frame by frame. I'm, I'm going to be, yeah, I'm way over this movie already. It, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, we, we have some fantastic visuals, and that's a hallmark of, of Chris Nolan as well, where he, he wants to build everything you see. Like in The Dark Knight, they actually flipped over an 18-wheeler. You know, that's not a CGI shot. In Inception, they, they build the, the hallway that rotates so they can mimic zero gravi- a fight in zero gravity. Um, you know, he, he builds the sets to look real. He, wa- he wants to immerse you in this world, make you feel like you're there. A lot of times, his, his movies feel like a ride. I remember I saw Interstellar in an IMAX, and it was so loud that the sh- uh, seats were shaking, and I... You know, you had that feeling like you're on the spaceship. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm gonna have to find an IMAX theater to go see this, and definitely like an actual. One. I'm sure you know one nearby, but I'm definitely excited to see this. I can't wait to see more Robert Pattinson. That man can do no wrong in my eyes. Uh, 
But John David Washington's going to be great coming off of Black Klansman. If you didn't see that, you should go see that before this just to get an idea of his performance because he is really good. Um, man, I'm I'm stoked for Tenet. I can't, I can't wait to find out more. I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to spoil it for myself. That's Tenet. Uh, we should do the next trailer. You took this one. So I should take the next one. This is a movie called Netflix. This is actually Netflix, not in the title. But Netflix's film, The Old Guard. Who are you? You can call me Andy. And The Old Guard is about, as far as I can tell, Charlize Theron, who is one of five elite soldiers who have a unique healing ability where they can't really die similar to like wolverine as far as i can tell the same thing yeah. and and this group of soldiers who's lived throughout time and centuries uh righting wrongs and and changing history finds a young girl uh who has a similar ability to them and decides to train them up uh as as one of their own to to keep the legacy going of, of doing crazy black op missions to change history i guess um not the best not the best summary but i just watched the trailer about 20 minutes before we started this show so excuse me andy uh what do you think about the old guard so this seems to be falling into a formula that we're beginning to see from netflix which is spend a lot of money on action get a star and throw it on netflix and it's probably going to be mediocre what this reminded me of was extraction which we saw last month or a couple of weeks ago uh, also from netflix starring chris hemsworth who basically did the same thing he was this big action movie tons of action tons of stuff blowing up and people you know chases gunfights all that hand-to-hand combat attached a big star and it's a it was a pretty mediocre film and this looks exactly the same yeah, this this movie looks totally mediocre. Uh, the the two big stars in it are Charlize Theron and and uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor. I yeah, don't know how to say his right. name uh, from Twelve Years a Slave. Yeah, uh, who's fantastic. Both of them are great, and as far as I can tell, those are the two big names here. Otherwise, it seems like a whole bunch of nobodies. Uh, the plot seems super generic. It seems like it's just going to be action and some choreography and some stunt work and then some CGI to do like bullet holes and cover up wounds. You know, it, it just feels like we're checking boxes, right? How did this happen? How did, there was a time when a movie came to Netflix and it was like, okay, that'll be cool. And now a Netflix original just feels like some other... Uh, I, I mean, we talked about the Lovebirds, right? It's like this tier now of film that like feels subpar. This is this is the straight-to-TV movie of 2020. Yeah, it's, it's the TV movie with a much bigger budget. Yeah, it's, it's film of the week. Like, I, I don't get it. Like, wh- why would they... Well, okay, now I take it back. I know why they would want this, because they know people will watch, right? Like, yeah, why would ex- they want this? Extraction was extremely popular. That It had something like 90 million views in the first week. Uh, people watch this formula. As much as it's not super you know, creative or interesting, it works. Yeah, it, it's, it certainly seems to work. I don't think much of it. I, I don't think much of this movie, and I know I shouldn't judge a, a, a movie by its trailer or a book by its cover, But man, like this one just seems so paper thin, like unless there's some kind of incredible something happening under the surface here, it feels like this is a paint by numbers, connect the dots film that anybody could piece together after watching the, after watching the first trailer. Like you can already see where it's going. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I hate feeling cynical about movies. What do you think? <laughs> um, well, first of all, it's based on a comic book property, so it does have some. Okay, some that's kind cool. Of, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it, it it does have a source material, which I think helps. Uh, but you know, we're in a content drought right now, so content is king. Anyone that has anything is going to be better than it, people who don't have new things coming out. Um, right. And you know, and just for your average uh, viewer. And someone just looking to throw on something on a Friday night, it's fine. It'll work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess it will. I guess it'll work. It's, you not, know? it's I, not bold cinema, but... It's it's not bold cinema, by God. <laughs> you're right. And and we'll probably end up watching it on some slow week here, because you're right, we're in a content drought, and, and we're doing what we gotta do. So, Netflix is doing what they gotta do. Apparently, Charlize Theron is doing what she's gotta do. Look how far she's fallen from Mad Max Fury Road. How, how could she? Um... And with that, we should probably move on to our final film of the episode. I'm going to be taking the summary on this one. The movie is Rocket Man. 
feeling empty. I could hear the whole tune in my head. It was all there, I could see all the notes, and I just had to get it out. It's a little bit funny. So, Rocket Man came out in 2019, last year, and this came at the end of a wave of music biopics for that year, because there's more coming. Um, but right now, again, content drought, nobody's making stuff. This came shortly after Bohemian Rhapsody. This is the story of Elton John, right? Growing up in Britain as a young so-and-so who wanted to be a piano player and then started playing piano but couldn't really write lyrics, so he got a guy to do it for him. And then he moved out of his house, and then he was kind of like, well, I'm I'm gay, and then he had to, tell, to deal with it with his parents, and then he grew, blew up, and, and he had a weird agent. It's the story of Elton John, <laughs> and it's the story of how he got... Most of the way to where he is, because it doesn't cover his whole life, which we'll get into. Um, the difference between Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody, which came out right next to each other, is A, the lead, Taron Egerton, sings the songs, uh, whereas in Bohemian Rhapsody, Rami Malik, who played Freddie Mercury, does not actually sing. It's it's ADR or, or voiceover. They dub over Freddie. He didn't actually sing the songs. Lip sync. Uh, lip sync. That's the <laughs> word I'm looking for. Thank you, Andy. Uh, whereas in this, Taron Edgerton actually sings. B, Elton John was much more involved with the production of this than apparently Queen was with Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, he had been trying to get this movie made for like two decades or so I read. C, this film is rated R with actual drug use and some actual graphic content, which is a nice refreshing change for a movie about rock stars because Hollywood hates showing that stuff off, even though that's what rock stars are about. And the one thing they really have in common is their director. Because this movie is directed by a man named Dexter Fletcher, who also picked up directing Bohemian Rhapsody after Brian Singer left the production. Mm. He finished that movie. And then because he finished that movie, he was signed to make this one. So this was his second kind of swing at making a music biopic. Before this, I think he had done a whole lot of music videos. Uh, this was really kind of his first foray into something great. And it shows... This movie's kind of good, and, and we should talk about it. So, Andy, what did you think of Rocket Man? Well, it's funny because I was really not excited for this movie, and I really didn't care to watch it when it came out. And even when it was starting to get some awards and some attention, I was still like, eh. Um, I ended up really, really enjoying it. I really liked it. It's so much better than Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, the music is... And I'm a, and I'm a bigger fan of Queen than I am of Elton John, but just the way the music is used throughout the film to uh, convey his life is so much more cinematic. Uh, they use it's much more like a, a movie musical. It reminded me a lot of something like La La Land, um, where there's there's dancing, there's people breaking into song randomly, as well as just telling the normal story. And there's just so many scenes where things become you enter like a dream state or they're kind of surreal. Um, and those those scenes are just really powerful, and they're completely absent in something like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which just seems like uh, an infomercial or just please remember us, we're queen, we're cool, please buy our songs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I pretty much feel the same way, and I, I, I think I might be in the same boat. I think I might like Queen more than Elton John, and I actually like Elton John a lot, so I was, I was looking forward to seeing this film. Um, I, I thought... Bohemian Rhapsody was okay. It wasn't good, but it was all right. This movie is another level of good, though. Like, it's it accelerates what a music biopic is, as most people know it, and it takes it to another level. And, and there's a couple ways it does that. I do think it still falls for some of the same traditional pitfalls, which is a shame. It's got some problems, uh, mostly towards the end of the film. But ultimately, it's such a better package for telling somebody's life story, a rock star story. It's so much more vulnerable and inviting than Bohemian Rhapsody. And, and I'm not sure if that's because Bohemian Rhapsody was going off of what people think of Freddie Mercury because they couldn't actually talk to him, whereas Elton John was directly involved in this. But it just feels so much more sincere, and it feels so much less like a cash-in and so much more like a passion project, which is what music is, a passion project. And that's why so many of these films fall short, I think. So let's talk about this movie. I think the first place to talk about, the first thing to talk about when we talk about it is is our lead, Taron Ed, Ed, Edgerton. Or Egerton. Uh, he's so good in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he's absolutely fantastic. A, he's singing all the songs. 
um, like if you go and listen to the soundtrack, his name is on the soundtrack. So he's yeah. singing all the songs. That makes a big difference in his performance. I remember at one point you can see you can see him spitting on the microphone when he's singing. Like that's so you know he's actually doing it, and it's, and it's so much more more intense. Uh, and then his off screen persona stuff is done really well. The because he's a shy guy in, throughout the film, and he he kind of has to take on this more extroverted persona to in order to to succeed and we get some of those moments where he kind of becomes full with himself and said like i'm the reason we're successful i'm elton john now blah 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 yeah uh he's so good uh he 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 starts off as like like you said this this very vulnerable character who's living at home with his mom and his dad's not around and you get this really sincere kind of opening for the film which well, we'll get into later general structure because it's worth talking about the beginning of the movie and the problem with that. But he starts off just as a kid, just like, a, well, now hold on. Let me walk it back. The movie actually opens with a framing device. It opens with our lead, Elton John, strolling into rehab, wearing a full demon devil outfit, which is very flamboyant and very orange and very bombastic. And he sits down in rehab and he's, he's like, I'm going to tell my story. And that's our framing device for the film. And as we walk through his life, it cuts back to rehab and he takes pieces of this outfit off until at the end, he's pretty much not wearing anything and he's very vulnerable and open and he's kind of turned into a new person, right? Visually, which is smart. It's very smart. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody didn't have anything on that. It was just like, here's the story of Freddie Mercury. Um, exactly. That, yes. I was gonna. I wanted to mention that 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 grabbed me from the beginning because we see that scene very early on, and he like kicks the doors open, and it looks like he might be going to perform, right? But he's not. He's going to rehab. But the, you know, it's in slow mo. There's music playing. Um, it was just like it's like this is a great entrance, and it, it, the film really grabbed me from that moment forward. Right, and and then we get a kickback to his his life as a kid. He grows up, and he's this super shy kid, right? And 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 he's gay, which is not cool at the time he's growing up in. Uh, so he's got to keep that a secret from people. And some people are cool with it, and some people aren't. And he's very self conscious. And even though he puts on this air of of these wacky clothes and these wacky colors and these, these crazy designs, like it sticks with him, and it shows in the performance. It's not just hey, I'm nervous about going on stage. At his first big show, he's like screaming at somebody who doesn't want to go out. And then his manager comes out and says, you got to go out there because you signed a contract. And and then he stands up and does it. And he performs and he rises to the challenge again and again in this film. And even when he's angry and, and he's he's upset at people because I'm Elton John and you're nobody, you know, I, 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 I made all this happen and, and this is all built on me. He, he stops and apologizes afterwards because he knows he's being he's being a jerk and like it makes him so much more human as a person because he's multifaceted. He's not just this stone-faced character. He's not just this person on a stage. He's he's a person and like that comes out through Taron Egerton's performance so good. Like he really brings it out to go from you know this frustrated drug-addled angry person to suddenly immediately happy and cheering on stage and playing piano for people and to be able to jump in between those two and still be a character is is really hard to do i'm i'm surprised he wasn't nominated for some kind of oscar for this like really yeah i i'm really surprised by that uh as well i think he was nominated for a golden globe maybe Mm. um yeah, it's it's really surprising, but the the film really focuses on him as a character and and his weaknesses, his struggles, which again are his sexual identity, his um kind of abandonment from or kind of lack of faith from his parents, um, and also th- things like substance abuse, uh, money, these things that are become issues when you're you're a rock star. Relate relationships become uh, problematic, so it really focuses on that on that, and less of like in Bohemian Rhapsody, where it's like, hey, everyone remember Freddie? He was he was great. Yeah, he was cool. Yeah, and, and you're right. Like it can't be understated. He's actually singing all the songs. I'm pretty sure he did like months of vocal coaching and stuff to like get to a point where he could sing these songs and worked very closely with Elton John, who he does duets with on the soundtrack, who helped him do all of this stuff. And all of it shows because this music is is emotional and it's powerful and there's a reason it's so popular. And like, I think the same care needs to be taken in showing a fictional rendition of how that came about. And it has, it feels genuine. Um, We should talk about the songs, right? The the actual presentation. Yeah. You, you alluded to earlier, this kind of dreamlike sequence that sometimes is entered when these songs are happening. Do you want to dig a little bit more to that? Cause I got hot takes. 
Yeah, we, we have, well, one of the earliest songs is actually when he's young at the dinner table and he kind of breaks into song as a, as a kid, as a child. And so we get some of these really kind of unique arrangements of it. Uh, again, I don't know his music as, as well as others. Uh, but yeah, we have some just straightforward performances, but we also have a lot of uh, again, where it turns into a whole musical. There, there's parts where, you know, the whole neighborhood j- bursts into song and dance. And then uh, m- probably my favorite v- my favorite part is when he uh, f- first sings at the Troubadour and he, he plays Crocodile Rock. And when he gets to the kind of the chorus where everyone jump- jumps in and sings, everything slows down and everyone starts to float. Uh, literally off the floor and including him and and the the orchestra takes over it's in slow-mo the, the it's like it's really really an incredible moment musically visually and then it everyone like drops to the ground slams down and like the song continues and it's those things that i was like man that is truly cinematic and, and we get a lot of the these sequences all throughout the film yeah, like I, I think back to how <laughs> that because that's it's funny is exactly the one I think of too that and the titular Rocket Man track. Um, but I think back to how Bohemian Rhapsody handled this stuff, right? And it was a whole lot of different, like just montage stuff. Hey, here's Queen on a stage in in Australia, and here's them on a stage in Burbank, and here's them on a stage in England, and it would just kind of cut back and forth and have some cool lighting effects and like maybe recreate a couple music video scenes. But otherwise, it's not that creative. This is trying to capture, like, the feeling of being at a live show and and how it feels to not only experience that music live with the artist, but how the artist feels to play it for you. Yeah, and that scene when he's playing Crocodile Rock and his feet just kind of float up off the ground behind him and the only thing keeping him rooted in the scene is the piano and his fingers on it. Like, that's really cool. That's really cool visually. Whoever came up with that... Yeah, deserves some it, recognition. It's so smart. Yeah, it's such a clever way to show that. And that's just one that's just one song. There's like there's like 15 in this movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We see this all throughout and it's so stylistic and again, it reminded me more of something like La La Land and less of something like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. And and part of my big problem with Bohemian Rhapsody is it just it, it it's the it's the very sanitized version of, of the band. It's and the band was directly involved with it in Brian May. They did not want the warts and all, the the Freddie Mercury like crazy party with lots of drug use and and whatever else. Um, they didn't want that. They they wanted like the PBS family friendly version of Queen so they could sell more records. And and we don't get that. We do get a much more kind of authentic character here. We do. Um, I do want to talk about the costuming. It's worth getting into. Uh, obviously, Elton John is known for his kind of wacky outfits, uh, and they spare no expense here. Um, not only do they go to the, the trouble to recreate a lot of his old outfits from archival footage, and I think things that he actually provided to this to the studio for them to recreate, but they also come up with a lot of new patterns and colors. And it's not just limited to Elton John's outfits. Everybody in this movie is wearing cool stuff with texture and color and tone that feels smart. And it's it's exclusive to character. His father, who's very closed off, wears a lot of button-ups and suspenders and tight pants and bland colors. His mother wears a couple more bombastic colors, but a lot of solids, lots of florals. He wears stripes at the beginning of the movie and then escalates to crazier patterns and starts wearing denim when he goes to America. Like, you get this really clever progression of costuming as character develops and it feels really smart and whoever was working on it deserves some recognition as well because it's throughout the whole film and it extends to the scenery as well the scenes the 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 sets are very colorful and and exclusive and feel smart and open and and it's just real real good filmmaking man whoever put the trouble into that yeah it's worth it i wanted to talk a little bit more about about the cast um outside of our main star we have uh jamie bell playing the lyricist uh Bernie Taupin, and what I think was a big standout was Bryce Dallas Howard as his mother, uh, Sheila, um, and I didn't recognize her at first, and I think she probably um, put on a, like a lot of weight for this role because she looks like I'm, I got to be careful of where that's going. <laughs> she put on weight for this role. Um, she looks different. Like, uh, I didn't recognize like, her at first. Yeah, I really exactly. Yeah. Like if you've seen Jurassic World, like you know, she plays like a tiny executive in in that. She's a much smaller framed person. So I like, I didn't recognize her at first, but it's like, it, it's in her, her, it fits her character a lot. And that, that's, that's its own kind of, of dedication to the film as well. And, and, and she plays kind of this, uh, 
supportive yet unsupportive mother. Like she doesn't abandon their family like like their dad, but she doesn't really believe in the kid. And a lot of it, uh, I think, is from his homosexuality that he's not supported by either parents because of that. And they, they just they're not supportive even when he's successful they're like well you know could you just write us a check yeah <laughs> can you just give me my money and I'll, I'll get out of my way right they just they just take what they can from him and that's it they don't actually give anything back and that's the idea of their characters simple but effective uh we need to talk about john dean uh who's played by richard madden who formerly played uh, rob stark on game of thrones uh john dean is is such an interesting character in this movie because from the very second he shows up on screen He's too perfect. Nobody in this movie is perfect. And then he shows up and he's got the perfect hair and the perfect suit and the perfect smile. And he doesn't fit. And it works so great visually because as the film goes on, he develops a deeper relationship with Elton and they they start working together and things go from there. Like you start to feel like, hey, you shouldn't trust this guy. He's no good. Like from from the, the first scene he's in and it just feels so obvious that he is standing at odds with our lead. And it helps you to fall in line with Elton John because he feels alone, he feels vulnerable because his parents don't love him. So when he starts to really shelter some some hospitality in, in this character that Richard Madden plays, you, you feel sad for him because you know it's not really going to go the right way. And, and like it, it helps you feel on top of the movie in a way that's really smart and effective while also being plugged into what's happening. Um, it's great character design. For, for John Madden. He's, he's really well done. Yeah, and, and it it also, I wanted to talk about um, one of the early producers we we meet um, named uh, Dick James, uh, played by Stephen Graham, uh, who I know from Snatch, which is like a 20-year-old film. Yeah. Um, but he, he plays with the first kind of music producer he, he works with, and he's one of these like old schools, you know, uh, no-nonsense, cigar-smoking, uh, no kid, that's no no good, you gotta sell records, uh, kind, yeah. of, kind of cartoon character. But he's, he's really good in, in the film, uh, and, and it, he's just an excellent part of this supporting cast. Yeah. Um, we need to talk about kind of the general plot. I think we should probably get into a little bit before we get too far... Uh, away from recommendations i do think there are some problems in this film i said at the beginning uh, i think most of them come in the structure Mm -hmm. uh namely there's some really smart things like the framing device at the beginning that we cut back to as his as he continues to kind of reveal more about himself he visually is taking off parts of his outfit and this mask that he uses to hide from the world um but also when we get the cut back to his younger life i clocked it because i was curious we get like 40 minutes of him being a kid and it's like a two and a, it's like a two hour, two and a half hour film, maybe two hours and change. Yeah, so that's a hours. good chunk of your movie. You don't even get to his first performance till an hour in. And that's being like eight years old to like 22. And it's an hour of your film, which is almost half. It's pretty deep and they could have made some deep cuts there <laughs> because it really starts slower than it needs to because it, it comes in so strong with the rehab stuff and the feeling like, hey, this is really going to go somewhere. And then also it feels like it ends a little short because Elton John's like, how old is he? Like 55, 60? And, and like this movie ends when he's maybe in his what, late 30s? Like there's more to the story and it just kind of stops. Um and it ends on a song that is not worth revealing on the show because I think it's what we're talking about. But is 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 counterintuitive to where you think it should stop. It's not it's not particularly inspiring, um, which is a shame. Like it, it, so much, of this movie works, but the wrapper around it that is this music biopic, I think, really hurts it. It has to follow these beats to work, and and. I think it would have been better maybe if it had been more of something like a musical, like you said, and less like a beat by beat thing. Yeah, I, I agree. It is a little long. You could probably shave 10, 15 minutes off of it. Uh, and I agree. The, the, the Him being a child is a pretty long part of it. But I do think that that part is important, but it could have been shaved down. Um, also, by the way, Elton John is 73. Like he's Okay. Yeah, he's, way older than him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I agree. It ends kind of abruptly. And I was the same thing. I was a little bit, bit surprised. And, and it also, and I don't know if you can get around this, it it hits a number of cliche things that we see in all biopics, the rise to fame, the drugs, the alcohol, the, the, basically the substance abuse, 
the the rehab, the recovery, like these become very cliche things. And the th- the, the thing is, they happen. Like I, I heard a quote that that said, "We would stop having cliche biopics if musicians stopped having cliche lives," which, which they seem to all kind of fall into this pattern. You know, starting back with Ray from uh, you know two thousand three about Ray Ray Charles. Yeah, and and I do think this movie still swings for the fences as much as it can, uh, which is appropriate uh, considering our, our our subject, Elton John. Um, this movie has scenes in it that are controversial, at least in other parts of the world. I did a little research. Like I said, this movie is banned in Russia. Uh, this movie is banned in a handful of countries. There are there are heavily amended uh, versions of this film that feature a handful of scenes that are removed because they feature some intimacy. Uh, between members of the same sex, which is not okay, but that's in this movie. And apparently, when they were making it, Paramount didn't like that. They did not want this stuff in there because they knew they were like, "This is going to divide people," and and we don't want to do that with audiences. We want everybody to like our movies. We want to make as much money as possible. And apparently, the production De- Dexter Fletcher and 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 Elton John were like, "No, man, it's staying in. Like we're keeping that stuff in, and it's not too graphic. It is rated R. I'd say the most graphic thing in here is probably vulgarity and and drug the usage. drug use. Yeah, yeah." Um, which again is in here uh, like Bohemian Rhapsody had a little bit of that, but shied away from it. This is, is a bit more showy. Um, and I respect it for that. I, I respect that they had a vision and they said, no, this is the thing we're going to do. Like I, I, it may not hit in the way it needs to all the time, but it hits enough that I really do appreciate it so much more, uh, than its counterparts. Right. Absolutely. Now, I don't think it's the best music biopic. Uh, I think it can be better. I think there are places this can improve. But this is the blueprint, I think, that music biopics should be going off of right. in the future. They what, should not be looking at Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. What What do you think is the best music biopic, by the way? Have you seen The Doors by Oliver Stone? I have not. Mm, I have to watch for the show. I definitely have it on Blu-ray because I, I like it that much. It might be Val Kilmer's greatest performance ever because uh-huh. he sings all the songs. Uh, it's really good. Al Kilmer's Jim Morrison. I do think that this is probably the best biopic since, since Ray, which I think held the crown for a long time. I did not see Ray. So maybe we need to, we'll do a music biopic showdown one episode and we'll see. We'll do, we'll do double feature. But anyway, we should probably move on to recommendations. I'm about spent on talking about this one. Uh, (laughs) How about, how about you? You ready? I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Rocket Man? Yeah, absolutely. It, I was really kind of blown away, with, and I was not—I'm not a fan of Elton John, really. Um, I don't know his music. I didn't really want to see this film, um, and I really enjoyed it. It's fantastic use of music and storytelling, costumes, performances—like all the reasons we go to the movies. Uh, this has it, it falls into some cliche territory, but that's kind of expected. Um, and it is a hard R. There, there are there's. Uh, there's graphic scenes, there's uh, substance abuse, uh, so just be aware of that. But I, I really enjoyed it. And where can people watch this, Zach? Uh, people can watch this on, oh God, where did we watch it? Netflix? <laughs> uh, no, uh, Hulu. 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 Excuse me. You can watch this on Hulu. I would recommend this movie as well. Uh, if you're going to watch a music biopic, you could do a little better. You could definitely do worse, though. Like, if, if you're a fan of Elton John, I think you're going to love this movie if you haven't seen it already. If you like musicals, I think you're going to like this movie a lot. If you like Taron Edgerton, you're going to like it. It's 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 pretty good, man. It's pretty good. Uh, like I said, it's got, it's got some flaws, but they are minor compared to what it's doing right. I can't wait to see what Dexter Fletcher is doing next, the director. I want to see what Taron Edgerton is doing next. Uh, thumbs up, man. This movie's good. <laughs> All right. And with that, we should probably wrap up the show uh, next week. Andy, what are we watching? Well, today is the launch date of HBO Max. So we're going to be taking a look at that. Um, surprisingly, some launch titles are not there, namely uh, Man of Steel, which is what I wanted to watch uh, for next week. Um, and it is not on there, So, and we don't know why. Uh, maybe some sort of... Uh, copyright dispute or something so but what we are going to watch is Lucy in the Sky which is the astronaut movie featuring uh, Natalie Portman and John Hamm uh, from last year and also we're going to be looking way back to Raising Arizona the Coen Brothers film correct yes uh, we decided we were going to watch a couple movies on HBO Max to uh, to inaugurate the new platform because we're excited about the selection over there which is actually pretty good I swear even though Man of Steel hasn't shown up 
or The Matrix or a handful of other movies. Um, but there's some really good stuff on there. The Studio Ghibli collection. There's a lot of Turner Classic movies that combines with HBO's current library. Um, so Man of Steel is available. We're going to check out Lucy in the Sky, which came out last year, which we talked about in the show in a trailer briefly uh, that I think looked pretty good, but I heard nothing. So maybe it's not great. It stars Natalie Portman and John Hamm. We're also going to watch Raising Arizona, which is a very early Coen Brothers film that came out in 1987, starring Nick Cage when he still had all his hair, which is crazy. And some other people, but I don't really know because I've never seen it, but I've always heard I should. And Andy hasn't seen it either. So that's true. Off script first, Raising Arizona next week and Lucy in the Sky. Uh, and and if HBO good. wants to send us a check, we're, we're happy to. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> if you want to sponsorship, slide into our DMs. We'll see what we got. Uh, we should tell you where to find more of us. If you enjoyed the show, you can follow us on Facebook where we're live streaming the show every week, at usually Tuesdays, over at facebook.com slash off script film review. We post teasers and short reviews on our Instagram page. We're on YouTube where our live streams are archived. You can find us over there if you want to keep up with the video. If you can do anything to support our show, if there's anything you can do to help us, you could write us an email at mail at Offscript Film Review and tell us what you thought of the show, or you could leave a rating and review. And you could you could you could tell us on iTunes and Google Play where it really matters, where 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 those numbers count, what you think, and you can give us five stars or maybe four stars, but definitely five stars. If there's anything you can do that, you can just subscribe. To subscribe to the show, to get involved and, and keep up with us and hear new episodes whenever they come out. So, with that being said, from all of us at Offscript Film Review, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.